0: Hey, if you have uh, your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 18 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you or if you don't own a Bible, as always, there are Bibles on the back table, and we would love for you to take one of those home with you if you need. Let that be our gift to you. Um, As you arrive at this morning's passage, you'll see that we are in the second to last passage of this letter from Paul to Timothy. Um, In fact, as of next Sunday, we will be finished with our series, Passing the Torch. That's crazy. Uh, Time has certainly flown. So last week, we examined Paul's solemn charge to Timothy to preach the Word, to preach the Scriptures that are inspired by God, to preach the Bible that is profitable to us in every way for teaching us about sin and our need for Jesus, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness, and for equipping us with everything we need for life and ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul urged Timothy, if you recall with me, that... Although many people will not endure this sound teaching, they won't stick around to hear the word of God preached because it goes against the lusts of their passions, their own sinful passions. Timothy urged, uh, uh, Paul urged Timothy to preach the word anyway, to preach it patiently and faithfully and proclaim the core of its message, which is this, Christ crucified and resurrected on behalf of sinners for the forgiveness of sins and the promise of everlasting life. Hallelujah. Timothy must preach God's Word because as we saw last week, everyone else is abandoning the truth of Scripture and they're turning to myths that suit their own sinful passions. But Timothy must also preach God's Word because as Paul's predecessor He is to carry Paul's torch of gospel ministry. As we know, Paul is will soon be executed. And so it's with with these things in mind that Paul begins to kind of collect his thoughts and, and bring this letter to Timothy to a close. And that's really, we're in the closing portions of this letter now. So if you will, uh, snag your Bibles and and read with me, um, or rather listen to me read, uh, starting in verse 9 of chapter 4, and we're going to go through 18. Paul writes this to Timothy. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds." The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, church? Father, we believe this word to be your inspired word that God the Holy Spirit you you birthed Through the pens of men some 2,000 years ago, we thank you for this word and ask God that, that the truth of Scripture might come to fruition here in this place, that we would be taught, that we would be convicted, that we would see our need for Jesus, that we would receive gracious correction and training in righteousness this morning. Lord, that you would equip us for what we need for Christian life and ministry today. And we ask this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. When we consider the dire situation in which Paul wrote this letter from Rome, when we consider that he's probably in the lowermost dungeon of this horrific Mamertine prison, that he's probably chained to a cold, damp wall in a near pitch black cell, when we consider the fact that he's, he's probably, if we're honest, sitting in his own feces while he awaits trial, to receive the final date and time of his execution. When we consider this dire situation alongside the fact that Paul has not once slowed or ebbed or stopped discipling Timothy and others, helping them to love and follow and exemplify Jesus through their various difficult situations, when we think about this, the circumstances that Paul is in and still doing the work of ministry it might be easy for some of us to think, well, Paul, is a mach- he's a machine. The guy, is, the guy is a beast. Am I right? But one of the reasons why I appreciate this morning's passage is that it reveals to us the humanness of Paul. It shows us that at the end of the day, Paul is a man. He is like us. In this passage this morning, Paul reflects on the harm that he has suffered by the man known as Alexander the coppersmith. He grieves being abandoned by his friend and ministry partner, Demas, and he expresses remorse that no one in Rome came to his side, came to his defense at his court hearing in in Nero's court. And while none of these things has shaken Paul from his ultimate hope and confidence in Christ, I think it's fair to say that that Paul is probably still struggling a bit. He's, He's aching in these final moments of his life. And in this passage, we see Paul seeking the comforting presence of his best friend and his ministry partner. He's seeking the comforting presence of his disciple, of his son in the faith, Timothy, to whom he writes this letter. And I want to propose it's because there's something, there's something, about, there's something about a deep and seasoned and tested and, and transparent friendship between believers, is there or not? There's something deeper, deeply comforting about a friend who truly truly knows you, your story, your fears, your struggles, and your your baggage. There's something deeply comforting about a friend who not only truly knows you, but who also loves you in in much the same way that God does. As Paul described in chapter 3, verse 10, if you look back, Timothy had followed his his teaching, his conduct. Timothy had shared Paul's life mission. Timothy had emulated Paul's faith as well as walking through Paul's sufferings and persecutions. And the point is, Timothy had walked through fire with Paul. He'd walked through fire with Paul. And as Paul shared, as he wrote to the church in Philippi, in in Philippians chapter 2, he told them, He had no one, Paul had no one else like Timothy. There was something very special about Timothy. It brings to mind uh, the scene at the end of The Lord of the Rings uh, when Frodo is recovering in Rivendell after surviving Mount Doom. And if you're not familiar with it, it's every bit as nerdy as it sounds. Um, But it's still fantastic. So Frodo wakes up in recovery And the room is full of people whom he's very glad to see again. But it's not until Samwise Gemji walks into the room that we see this deep, contented comfort wash over Frodo's face. Because Sam had literally walked through fire with Frodo. He had seen the best and the worst Frodo had no one else like Sam, and so therefore Sam was a tremendous source source of comfort to him. Now, these are fictional characters, hobbits precisely. Uh, But they reflect a, a, a profound foundational truth about humanity, okay, in that each of us in this room Uh, having been created in the image of a triune God, that is one God existing eternally in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, dwelling in perfect, loving, intimate community. If God himself dwells in community and we were created in his image, do we not see we weren't necessarily even created for community but in community? One of the things we see in today's passage is Paul's hunger for this sort of community. In verse verse 9, right out of the get-go, he pleads with his friend to come to him, to come be with him, to be at his side. And what I hope we take away this morning, apart from a deeper understanding of these verses, of course, is an understanding that Each one of us in this room, there are no exceptions, each one of us has been created for this deep community. Firstly, with God himself, but secondly, with God's people, with other humans. And what I hope we take away this morning is that doing life in the context of Christian community and discipleship ultimately leads us to the deep friendships God is so graciously trying to give to us. And so, like medicine is to sickness, so community is in affliction. When we face our own Mamertine prisons, so to speak, whether it's the loss of a loved one or the pain of depression or job loss or sickness... Those friendships in Christ-like discipleship community are used by God to bring us comfort and affliction, as well as to point us to Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate comfort and affliction, as I hope that we'll see this morning. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have received and are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. I think that the temptation for us in Independent 21st century America is to isolate when we are facing affliction. To avoid being truly known. This is a huge problem. It has been ever since Adam and Eve severed their relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. See, after betraying God in their guilt and shame and fear, they immediately went into hiding. They became isolationists. And that mentality, if we're honest, still affects us today. Some of us who are the most deeply hurting in this room are the most isolated and disconnected from community, and community is huge for us here at Substance. I wonder how many of us are hiding, how many of us might be afraid to invest in someone and to be invested in by someone else because we might actually have to be real and authentic, and known. And so this morning, the title of my sermon is The Comfort of a Friend, and we're gonna look at, number one, The Comfort of a Friend, and number two, The Comfort of the Lord. I only have two points, and pretty straightforward. The Comfort of a Friend, The Comfort of the Lord, who is, of course, our truer and ultimate friend. So let's look at number one. So now, except for Luke, As mentioned in verse 11, Paul is all alone, and and, and just for the sake of background on Luke, Luke is not only the author of the, the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts, two New Testament books, but he was also a physician, and so he was probably with Paul in Rome monitoring his health while in prison. Now, Demas, as conveyed in verse 10, had deserted Paul. And this would have been an incredibly painful ordeal because just a few years earlier, Demas was a faithful friend and a loyal ministry partner to Paul. Paul even mentions his name in the closing of the letters to the church of Colossae, the, the book of Colossians, and to Philemon. Demas is mentioned. So to see Demas exchange the eternal pleasure of Christ for the temporal pleasures of the world, to see Demas Have the appearance of godliness as Paul described in chapter 3, verse 5, but ultimately deny its power, this would have been gut wrenching for Paul. And so Demas has deserted him, but so have many others in Rome. And so if you look ahead of where we are, the names that are actually listed in verses 19 through 22 of chapter 4, see all those names at the end? Those were potentially Roman church members none of whom came to Paul's hearing, probably for fear of their own lives, naturally. But nevertheless, Paul, just like Stephen did during his stoning and like Jesus did during his crucifixion, Paul prays for them. As we see in the second half of verse 16, he pleads to God that their desertion of him during his trial would not be charged against them. That's profound. Paul's other close friends, Crescens and Titus, they've all been dispatched on mission. I love the fact that Paul is still sending out soldiers of the Lord, doing the work of ministry while he's just hurting in prison. Mission has never left his mind. As we see in the second half of verse 10, uh, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, In verse 12, Paul says that he has sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Now, this is pretty uh, important because not only did Tychicus probably carry this very letter, the second and final letter to Timothy, not only did he probably carry it as he did the letters of Ephesians and Colossians, but Tychicus probably even served as the interim pastor for Timothy so that Timothy could leave Ephesus and journey to Rome to be by Paul's side. There's a lot of maneuvering that's going on here. And, and what we see here uh, in, let's see here, where am I? Verse, uh, verse 11 is that Paul requests um, not only for, uh, you know, okay, sorry, I lost my spot completely. <laughs> oh, here we go, here we go, here we go. So, and Mark, whom Paul requests in 11, he would have likely filled in for Tychicus, okay? So he's asking for Mark to come in and to, to land in Rome and to fill in the role that Tychicus was serving in so that Tychicus could go to Ephesus. Do we see, again, all of the maneuvering that Paul is doing so that Timothy, his beloved disciple and son of the faith, could come to Rome and be with him? Now, this is significant that he has asked Mark to come. And this, the significance of this could honestly fill in an entire sermon. Because you might recall from Acts 15 that Paul and Barnabas actually parted ways over Mark. Paul was adamantly against Mark accompanying them on their second missionary journey. But but it's clear by Paul's request here that Mark has demonstrated growth and maturity and even usefulness for ministry. So, Just so that we are learning the word here, every verse of it, hopefully, uh, it's probable, I'm gonna summarize verses nine through 15. It's probable that Paul's line of thinking in this part of the letter is something like this. Timothy, do your best to come to me soon because I long to see you one more time that I may be comforted and filled with joy at your arrival. All except for Dr. Luke, no one else is here. I'm, I'm alone. I've sent Tychicus with this letter, and he will relieve you of your duties in Ephesus while you come to visit me, but you'll need to bring Mark to fill in for Tychicus. And Timothy, on your way, because you'll travel through Troas, please stop at Carpus' house to get my cloak because it's cold here in prison, and winter is approaching Also bring my books and my parchments because until I'm put to death, I love this, I still have much to study and to learn and to write. Paul's never done. He's never done. Oh, and Timothy, while you're in Troas, because it was likely that this man was in Troas, watch out for Alexander the coppersmith. He's hell-bent on snuffing out our gospel message. So do we, do we see a, a likely or probable stream of thought for Paul in verses 9 through 15? Now, a passage like this can honestly be rather difficult to preach because it's, it's filled with logistics. There, there aren't doctrinal imperatives here, right? But, but what I'd like us to consider this morning is this, that at the very heart of verses 9 through 15, underneath all of the logistics and the maneuvering of people is a weathered apostle who in the last days of his life simply wants to be comforted by the presence of his friend. At the beginning of this letter, Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 4, that he longed to see Timothy that he may be filled with joy. And it's finally here at the end in verse 9 when he urges Timothy to make every possible effort to come and see him and he even reiterates that request in next week's passage in verse 21 Paul misses his friend and he wants the comfort of his presence but what I found interesting about processing this passage this week is this I bet that Paul didn't envision this deep connection when he first ran into Timothy on his first missionary journey Timothy was considerably younger, but Paul took him under his spiritual wing, so to speak. And what began as a pretty straightforward discipling relationship, what we see blossomed into a full-fledged, life-giving, joy-filled relationship and friendship. I bet Paul didn't envision the day when he would receive so much comfort and joy in the presence of this young punk teenager from Lystra whom he had invested 10 years of his life in. And church, I hope we understand that the that the comfort Paul receives from Timothy is undoubtedly correlated to Paul's investing in Timothy. Undoubtedly correlated As was the case, if we remember back in our series before this, in Ruth, as was the case for Naomi, who invested in Ruth while in Moab, only to have, to receive comfort from Ruth and Ruth to Bethlehem. Do we remember that? Deep comfort comes from those we've gone deep with. And so this is a call this morning, I believe, to us to give ourselves to someone for the sake of their spiritual comfort and ours. It's a call for us to commit ourselves to someone, to walk with someone, to regularly fail in front of someone, to regularly repent in front of that someone. It's a call to be real and raw and forthright with someone in your life. If only more Christians would taste the goodness of this, of what it is to be truly, really, deeply known. Right? If only more of us would seek a relationship with a Paul or a Timothy in which we could build up trust over time and eventually become beautifully raw and honest about our deepest fears and worries and regrets and sins. Not worrying whether or not our Paul or Timothy will accept us if we're honest, but because like Christ, they already have. They already have. There's something profoundly comforting about being in someone's presence who's like that. So the the urge here is, is not to do what we're naturally bent to do since the Garden of Eden. It's not to isolate It's to not be an island. It's to not be reclusive, as tempting as it may be. And so the urge here, as we look at this deep, comforting relationship, is to to think, who could I ask to walk with me in this way? And who could I commit myself to to walk with them so that we could be honest and vulnerable and be known? And church, I really just don't want us to underestimate the strength and the power of the pole to be isolationists, to come in and only do community so much, to come to our, our community groups throughout the week and to only be so honest year in and year out that we, we fail to fully be known by someone. And ultimately, the comfort of our deepest and most loyal and most committed friendships And relationships within the body of Christ, they point us to the comfort of of knowing and being known by our greatest friend Jesus, who is also our greatest comfort. And so look at number two, the let's look at number two, the comfort of the Lord, and let's see how Paul rounds this portion of the letter out. See, though he uses God, though God uses our Paul's and our Timothy's to bring us comfort in times of trial. There is ultimately no one on earth who can comfort us like Jesus can. Even when our closest friends fail us, and they will at times, Jesus never leaves us and he never forsakes us. And so what we see here is that even though none of Paul's earthly friends stood by him during this hearing, we read in verse 17, let's look down at 17, we read that Paul's heavenly friend did stand by him. He writes, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. It was the comfort of Christ and the strength of of the spirit that Paul experienced in his time of need, which we are free to ask for in our time of need. And apparently there was an audience at his hearing. So not only did the sovereign Lord providentially slow down Paul's execution, it, you know, he, was, he was spared from the lion's mouth. And that's probably not a literal uh, term. It's more likely that, that the lion's mouth was being spared from immediate death rather than you know, being executed later on. Although Nero did start feeding Christians to animals shortly after this. So... It it, it was the, the comfort and the strength of Christ and the spirit that stood with Paul here while he was on trial. Not only did God slow down the process of his execution, but he also supplied Paul with an audience in Nero's own courtroom to preach the good news that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And he got to preach to even more Gentiles because of the slowing of his execution I've thought to myself as I'm reading oh the you know the sweetness of being comforted and strengthened by God himself in the moments when we most need. See all too often I pray away the uncomfortable circumstances that surround me. If only I realize that that the uncomfortable circumstances are the very occasions in my life that God uses to wash me in his supernatural comfort. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you're always asking God for more of him, but then always praying for ease and convenience in every part of life. Maybe you're like me, that, you know, I'm always asking God to show me that all I need is Jesus, and yet I don't want to face the fact that I'll never know Jesus is all I need until Jesus is all I have, until I'm stripped of all other comforts and securities. See, the the deepest comfort any of us will ever experience, church, will be attained when we finally come to grips with the promise of 2 Corinthians 12, that that God is not only with us in our weakness, his power is made perfect in it. Meaning this, we most experience God's power when we are emptied of our own. And we will most experience God's comfort when we are stripped of our own. We will most experience God's fullness and ability to stand by us when it seems that no one else is. Do we not see here how great a mercy it is that God allows us to be emptied of our own power and strength and comfort so that He can give us more of Himself, which is ultimately what we want, so that He can give us more of Him. And the only reason why any of us undeserving sinners can be met with such a promise that God will manifest His power in our weakness, the only reason why we can receive such a promise is because Christ stood alone while he was on trial before Pontius Pilate. It was because Christ walked alone while he ascended Golgotha. It was because Christ hung alone as the Father's wrath was poured out on him on the cross on behalf of our sin. Because Christ stood alone, church, we will never have to, ever. And even more, Paul continues in verse 18 that he says the lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom to him be the glory forever and ever amen now here it's not it's not that paul was forecasting his release from prison or from execution he is absolutely certain he is going to be executed It's not that Paul was spared the difficulties and the persecutions that he listed in chapter 3, verse 11. He endured them. He endured the persecutions, and yet at the same time, he says that the Lord rescued him from them. What a paradox. So it's not that Paul is saying that he and we will be plucked from all of the evil deeds that come our way, although false teachers on TV would tell us. God wants to ease everything and take away all difficult circumstances for you. That is not true. That is not true. What Paul is saying here is that his most supreme comfort and confidence is that God will rescue him from ultimate danger from anything and everything that would, that would threaten Paul's faith or his salvation. What Paul is saying is that he is absolutely confident in and comforted by God's mighty ability to keep him, to seal him, to secure him, and to guarantee his ultimate rescue from ultimate evil. Sometimes this isn't an easy truth, is it? And nevertheless, God says supernaturally that in those moments when we are facing the most distress, He is with us with the raw power of heaven. And those of us who have been at that very bottom can testify, can we not? Yes, the Lord is good. He will surely do it. In reflecting on this glorious truth, Paul is led into flat out worship in the second half of verse 18. There's got to be something that's deeply connecting with his heart as he writes this because he just goes off to him, to God, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And my prayer is that that is indeed what each of us will say as we taste and see in our afflictions, in our Mamertine prisons, that the Lord, the Lord himself, will stand by our side and be our comfort in the time of need. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you so much that because Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that we have not, the perfect life of obedience. I thank you, Lord, that because then he took my sin and the sin of my brothers and sisters in Christ before me, and he, he died the sinner's death that we deserved on a cross and was buried in a tomb that we deserve, but who raised to life victoriously three days later. I thank you, Lord, because of this gospel news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as a substitute in our place, Lord. I thank you that now we can receive the greatest comfort the world would ever know, the comfort of God himself with his people, Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would would take that and we would run now into deep fellowship and relationship and friendship and community here with our brothers and sisters, that there would be deep koinonia, God, where we can be known, real, raw, and forthright, and that that too would be a gracious comfort to us in time of need and in time of not need, which sometimes we think that we're in those seasons, but we're always in need, Lord. Help us to see these things and to make this connection today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.